Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Alternate Oscars. I am your one and only host, Gabe Wine, and with every episode, I, along with a special guest, will be celebrating and rewarding our favorite films from each year, starting in 1928. We will discuss our brief thoughts on each film we nominate, and comment on the actual Oscar year, and some fun details on the ceremony. A few rules we always follow. We will be strictly following the reminder list of eligible releases. Those can be found on the website and the Oscar goes too. The amount of categories will also change over time as a sort of tie-in to the Academy's evolution over time. My guest today is going to be Luke Ball. Um, hi Luke, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So, how are you doing today? How's your day been? Uh, it's been alright. Been a pretty chill weekend. Uh, we're recording this on Sunday, so I had a kind of a busy Saturday, but uh, Sunday's been pretty lazy. I think that's how God intended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very much. Very chill. So. I'm excited about this year. Today we are going to be talking about the films of 1942, and I think a good place to start would to be to ask, what were your favorite films from this year that were not eligible? This can be any film that was released in 1942 but was not on the reminder list of eligible releases this year. Well, of course, the obvious answer, Casablanca, kind of famously or infamously known that's originally released in 1942, um, but it didn't win until 43 and wasn't nominated for anything till 43. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna go with that. It's kind of the obvious answer, but it's kind of too obvious to not go with it. Um, that and cat people. Another film that wasn't eligible until the year after, but unlike Casablanca, didn't get nominated for anything um, because of, presumably because of the Academy's bias against war films. And of course, it's remark it's noted for Nicholas Busaraka's cinematography and just really immaculate horror filming. <laughs> Yeah, it's not only the so, genre bias, yeah, but, but also the the fact that it's very clearly a B movie. You can tell from its uh, not only its runtime, but well, from, that's... yeah, you can tell from like its budget that it was clearly not something that they were even going to push. So it had everything working against it, aside from being uh, ineligible until the next year. Yeah, but it is an excellent film, and we'll talk about we'll talk more about both films uh, in the next episode. But until then, I guess it's time to announce our nominees for this year. And per usual, we start with the last category, special effects, and then with the first best picture, and we take our turn. We take turns announcing the nominees with the guest going first. So. But I understand, um, 
you messaged me saying that there were some categories that you didn't have nominees for just because you didn't see the films. Yeah, there were some specific categories. Uh, for instance, things like special effects and sound recording. Um, I just, I didn't feel like I'd seen enough films where I'm like, I can't fill up a roster of nominees from what I've seen, where I feel like every nominee would have deserved to be here. It would have felt a lot more like just throwing darts at five movies I've seen from 1942 and then just deciding they're the nominees for this category now. Um, there, There's a film here and there for some of the categories where I'm like, I could throw that in, but I don't, I don't have enough of those to fill an entire category for all those times, you know? Uh, so just with those categories, I'll announce my nominees and move on. So my nominees for Best Special Effects are The Black Swan, I Married a Witch, Jungle Book, One of Our Aircraft is Missing, and Saboteur. Yeah, I Married a Witch, that's a good, that's one of the ones that uh, I would love to have put that in a special effects lineup, but I can't think of other films, that, at least ones that I have seen, that I would feel confident putting in a category where it just didn't feel like padding, like very obvious filler, just for a reason to give I Married a Witch recognition, because I would obviously go put that in that category. Yeah. So next we have best film editing. Okay, now this one I did have. I did have nominees for this one. So for editing, I have 49th Parallel, Mrs. Miniver, Now Voyager, Sullivan's Travels, and To Be or Not To Be. Very nice. So, my nominees for film editing are 49th Parallel, The Magnificent Ambersons, Saboteur, Sullivan's Travels, and To Be or Not To Be. Yeah, I feel like those last two, uh, Sullivan's Travels and To Be or Not To Be, those are going to come up a lot today. Especially, I know now that they're very much highly considered classics, uh, but at the time they, they did not do very well at the academies, and it's kind of surprising considering how good they are. Yeah, well, I suppose we'll get more into the reception at the time later on, but yeah, they are definitely going to appear more in our nominees as we go on. As they deserve. Including the next category. Yeah. Including the next category, um, s um, sound recording. Yeah, this is one that I was going to pass on. So, take it away, host. Yep. So, my nominees are Bambi, Gentleman Jim, The Gold Rush, One of Our Aircraft is Missing, and To Be or Not To Be. 
Sounds like I gotta watch this one of our aircraft dismissing this film that you keep talking about. <laughs> yeah, it's um, another good Powell and Pressburger movie. And it's an example of a wartime propaganda movie that actually feels a bit more creative. Even though it's a propaganda war movie, there's a bit more of a premise going on than just Rah, rah, morale boosting, spirits, whatever. There's actually like a clever high spot going on here. But yeah, yeah. the next category is best song. Your song was another one I didn't know a lot. The only one I could think of from this year was obviously the winner, White Christmas, but... Yeah, um... There are like two? And then two others, and then one just... Eh, put it in. But... Besides the point, my nominees are... Dearly Beloved from Your Never Lovelier. Love is a Song from Bambi, Pigfoot Pete from Hell is a Poppin', We're Off on the Road to Morocco from Road to Morocco, and White Christmas from Holiday Inn. And I first knew of We're Off on the Road to Morocco from actually a Family Guy parody. Um, We're Off on the Road to Rhode Island, and Eventually, from that, I learned of the original source material, and Hell's Poppins' nomination is actually interesting because there's a lot of controversy surrounding that nomination. I'm just going to look it up so I know what I'm talking about offhand. So, and... Let me just look it up and load it on my phone. Okay, so, for this, um, the nomination, according to IMDb, according to IMDb, the nomination is a mystery. Both the nominations list and the program from the awards dinner list the song as being from Hell's a Poppin', a 1942 release for awards purposes. The song does not appear in that film, um, but did appear in Keep Em Flying, a 1941 release from the same production company and studio, and was therefore ineligible for a 1942 nomination. And I question my logic here, like, if I realized what the gaff here, I might not have nominated it, but I guess it's too late. <laughs> uh, it is what it is. Yeah, that's an interesting tidbit, though. It, 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 it reeks of uh, studio meddling. Incompetence. <laughs> I, no, I wouldn't say incompetence. I would say that my, I would believe that they were very intentional in making this song look as though it qualified for this year. Because really, especially at this time, they would do anything for that trophy. 
both true. Regardless of the category, yeah. as long as you see the statue on the shelf, it's prestige. Oh, yeah. Good point. So, I guess I forgot to pick Pete. Just have four nominees for me. Um, just disqualify it. Alone yet not alone style. Voted off the island. <laughs> okay. Um, let's move on to best original score. Okay, I am back in for this one. Okay, so for original score, I have I Married a Witch, The Magnificent Ambersons, Mrs. Miniver, Now Voyager, and Woman of the Year. Very nice. So my nominees are Bambi, The Gold Rush, King's Row, Now Voyager, and To Be or Not To Be. You know, I completely forgot that the Gold Rush technically qualified for this year. Oh yeah, I did. Um, and I decided to keep the nominations to that and even consider it for stuff like the original screenplay and picture. But we'll get to that, into those categories, but yeah. And something I'm just going to mention. It is the, cool. Something I'm going to mention at the top of this is because uh, I just met this is my first time mentioning the magnificent Ambersons. Because uh, this is one that's going to pop up a lot in my categories. Uh, but I'm just going to say this outright: being controversial yet brave. Not a fan of the movie as a whole. I do like the movie, if I want to divulge my thoughts right now, um, but I do see clear flaws with it, which I don't really blame on Norse Walls himself, but we'll get to that. Um, but yeah, this was one of the categories I wouldn't nominate it for, because I just, just knowing what happened to Bernard Herrmann's score, and the fact that he didn't even, even want to be credited for this, but again, we'll get to it later. Um, so next, we have Best Makeup. Okay, now I know that the, the category specifically doesn't outline this, and I wasn't sure, because I know even at the time, the Academy didn't specifically spell it out in the naming of this one. Uh, by chose to interpret it as, as makeup, also uh, kind of including hairstyling as well as makeup design. So I kept that in mind when putting my nominations together that unofficially I thought of this as makeup and hair because they do tend to go together. Uh, so my nominees are The Magnificent Ambersons, Now Voyager, The Palm Beach Story, To Be or Not To Be, and Woman of the Year. That's a very good list. So, my nominees are 49th Parallel, The Black Swan, 
Sullivan's Travels, To Be or Not To Be, and Yankee Doodle Dandy. Ah, the first appearance of Yankee Doodle Dandy. And it's not going to appear many other times. I'll just say that. I will say it doesn't At least appear, for me. It doesn't appear for a lot for, for me either. Uh, but it will po pop up in unlikely places. I look forward to seeing what ends up. So next we have best costume design. Okay, so for best costume design, I have for me and my gal, the magnificent Ambersons, now Voyager, to be or not to be, and Woman of the Year. Nice. Um, I'm assuming Adrian designed the costumes for Woman of the Year. I know that he was like the uh, MGM's go-to costume designer. Probably. I don't know off the top of my head, uh, which seems pretty weird since I put it down for costume design. Because uh, even for a lot of these movies, if I didn't know the designers uh, off the top of my head, even though this was a time where kind of the same costume designers worked uh, on all these films. Uh, I just went based off, as a viewer watching the film, what films I thought had the best costume design. Kind of wild, straightforward analysis. I know it's kooky to really think about that, to really judge a film on the merit of its art. <laughs> but. Um, yeah, I just think that Woman of the Year especially is an example of just, there's so many like iconic looks that it has, uh, especially film uh, looks that have now become part of the image and the legacy of Katherine Hepburn. Like there are some looks that are just quintessential Katherine Hepburn power woman looks. Uh, and then of course now Voyager, Betty Davis is stunning once she gets her makeover like there's not a single second after her ugly duckling transformation every second after that she is drop dead gorgeous her hair and her makeup and her outfits it's just everything is she she is the moment now come on now yeah um i I do really appreciate the nomination for Woman of the Year, and and I guess I would like to note how even today, Academy still takes contemporary costume design for granted, and Woman of the Year is a great example of just Catherine Hepburn at her peak fashion icon moment, just all the gown she wears and her overall attire it's undeniably influential and like you said about all the dresses and gowns that D. davis gets to wear in that voyager it's just of the moment it's just the moment and yeah so next we have best cinematography um the cinematography categories. So next we have best color cinematography. And 
so I don't have anything for color cinematography uh, because fun fact I think I even told you this I discovered while making these lists I have not seen a single film done in color from this year not a single one the only one I could probably think of is Bambi and I have not seen that in so long and that's and I was shocked to realize, I was like, not a single one, not even by accident, like all, I checked in Leatherboxd on the, I looked under all the films I've watched from 1942, obviously that qualified for this year. Um, and no, every single one that I've marked as watched is black and white. And I was like, wow. So I just thought literally my hands are tied. There's nothing I can even do with this one. <laughs> Yeah, um, that's understandable. It's not like it's a uh, uh, remarkably stacked category this year, but I came up with something. Um, my nominees were um, Arabian Nights, The Black Swan, Captain of the Clouds, Jungle Book, and Reap the Wild Wind. I guess, even though Arabian Nights wasn't good, uh, it, the technical cinematography did look good. I'm surprised how well it held up for its time. And then, Black Swan, also not a very good movie, but I liked how it looked. And then, Jungle Book and Rachel Aldwins, also not very good movies, but the technical cinematography, it still looks good. Yeah, a lot, yeah. Of, a lot of these technical so, categories, uh, not only with people's personal lists, but also with the actual uh, Academy Award nominees for each year, uh, do often tend to read as a kind of a great gowns, beautiful gowns kind of compliment to the film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great this and all that. And yeah. So next is the best black and white cinematography category, which is considerably more competitive, I'd argue. Yeah, I think it's oh obviously there's just a lot more films to play with, not only for me, but I feel like in general, since color was still relatively new. So it was not uncommon, but I feel like it was something that they only really broke out when they're like, no, this is a special film. This is an occasion. Uh, with that said, my nominees for black and white cinematography are 49th Parallel, In This Our Life, The Magnificent Ambersons, Now Voyager, and Sullivan's Travels. I did um, strongly consider 49th Parallel and I also considered Mrs. Miniver um, which looked good despite my issues with it but my nominees were The Magnificent Ambersons Now Voyager Saboteur Sullivan's Travels and To Be or Not To Be Sounds solid. I, 
I I guess I need to watch Saboteur because that's just a that's a Hitchcock that I just haven't gotten around to yet. Good and underrated for him. Yeah, it's not one of the ones I feel like gets talked about a lot. Um, as much as other ones from this era, like Rebecca and Foreign Correspondent and Notorious, the, bit, the heavy hitters like those, this one kind of gets lost in the sauce, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. So next we have Best Art Direction. Okay, so for Art Direction, my nominees are for me and my girl, the magnificent Ambersons, Mrs. Miniver, to be or not to be, and Yankee Doodle Dandy. Solid set of nominees. So my nominees are the magnificent Ambersons, now Voyager, the Palm Beach Story. Sullivan's Travels, and To Be or Not To Be. Yeah, Palm Beach Story is when I was considering putting on this list. Um, there's just something that the other films that I did include brought that I just felt more inclined to put on here, but that was definitely one of the films that crossed my mind when I was putting that category together, because um, especially with costumes and hairstyling, uh, the production design and the just the visual production of it all for that film specifically is really uh, one of the more defining features it has and really makes it it helps make it a very interesting watch uh, aside from just being an overall well-made film because uh, it's, it's something that kind of elevates because it is kind of a because it's less than 90 minutes, it's kind of a silly, fun, screwball comedy. Um, so the fact that it has such interesting production design, uh, especially the the apartment that Cla Claudette Colbert and Joe McCree have in that movie, like what is that duplex, that gorgeous, bougie, like everything and more. Yeah, back when uh, romantic comedies actually had budget and high production values and didn't just look so cheap. Like, I want like more romantic comedies that actually seem like they have a bit more or thought behind them. Like in the way they looked and just the sophistication they had. This is also still a part of the decades long era that kind of continued up through even the 90s and 2000s, all the way dating back from the beginning of the talking era pictures where you could fre frequently see romantic comedies or rom-coms in the top 10, sometimes even top five grossing films of the year. And for whatever reason, that does not happen much anymore. It's mostly uh, the action movies, the Marvel movies, the romantic comedies, while not uh, not a futile commercial effort, 
uh, there is definitely money to be made in the rom-com market, but it's not quite the heavy hitter box office guarantee that it historically was for many years in Hollywood. Good point. And I think it's a testament to how marketing was skewed starting in something like the 19, in a decade like the 1980s, where you really saw a kind of a boom of uh, action movies that really wanted to capitalize on just that blockbuster feel that was popularized with franchises like Star Wars and yeah, Star Trek. Uh, dipping your toes into the cinematic landscape and many others and yeah it just seemed the box office um just became kind of male dominated at least in terms of like the action movies that dominated and yeah there's a, um, an interesting point about how what the box office reflected as the decades went on. So next we have um, best cartoon short film. Yeah, this is one I'm gonna have to sit out. I I couldn't think of a I couldn't think of a cartoon short that would nominate from this year because there's very few that could actually because uh, obviously like many of us I've seen you know lots of Looney Tunes and Tom, Tom and Jerry's and things like that but there's none from this specific year that stuck out to me because there's the occasional like Looney Tune cartoon like uh, What's Opera Doc or The Rabbit of Seville stuff like that that I would nominate in their respective years but for whatever reason this year I just there wasn't any short any cartoon shorts that I could I, I could feel like throwing in a category yeah that's um, so I just really um there was just one that I was super passionate about and I had to come up with four others, so I guess my nominees are Blitzwolf, The Bulleteers, The Fjord's Face, Pigs in a Polka, and Tulip Shawgro. Um, I guess I'll get to my winner later, but yeah, those are my nominees. So next I have Best Foreign Film, which I think is the other that um, you're skipping out on. Yeah, this, unfortunately, uh, this is another one I gotta sit out on. Uh, before the 60s, my knowledge of foreign film is very uh, sparse. Yeah. I found three that were, um, that I think were playing for their time. So, my three nominees are, um, Four Steps in the Clouds from Italy, Mashenka from Soviet Union, and the murderer lives at number 21 from France. Surprise appearance by the Soviet Union. 
Yeah. So next we have best adapted screenplay. And I'm back off the bench. So for my nominees for best adapted screenplay, The Magnificent Ambersons, The Major and the Minor, Mrs. Miniver, Now Voyager, and Random Harvest. Nice. Um, so my nominees are Gentleman Jim, The Magnificent Ambersons, The Major and the Minor, The Man Who Came to Dinner, and now Voyager. Solid list. Uh, glad to see that we both mentioned the major and the minor. Uh, that's when I yeah. feel like deserves more attention because it's just it's just fun. It's just plain fun. Yeah, it is. And it was Billy Walter's debut as a director. Fun times. Yep. <laughs> so next is best original screenplay. All right. Uh, let me just pull up that list. All right. For original screenplay, my nominees are 49th Parallel, Sullivan's Travels, The Talk of the Town, To Be or Not to Be, and Woman of the Year. Nice. Um, I guess I did like Woman of the Year. Of uh, ending aside, um, but yeah, when I thought about it, I just consider it a good special Tracy Catherine Hepburn rom com. But beyond that, I wouldn't consider it. I'm, it's good, but I'm not sure if I'd call it great. But my nominees are 49th Parallel, One of Our Aircraft is Missing, Saboteur, Sullivan's Travels, and To Be or Not To Be. Yeah, good list. Um, I feel like I'm probably, uh, much like how I feel like, in, especially in terms of film Twitter, that I'm in the minority of not being a big fan of the Magnificent Ambersons. I feel like I'm just as much in the minority about really liking the talk of the town. Um, and just disclaimer, not only for you, but for and the just listeners, disclaimer now. Uh, just so you don't think you know who is going to be my winner based on what I say here, but for what the actual best picture lineup was that year, my number one would have been the talk of the town. It was probably my third favorite from the actual lineup that year. Um, there are um, a lot of things that I like about it. Uh, Ronald Coleman and Gene Arthur. That's actually one of the Cary Grant performances that um, I'm less of a fan of. I just feel like he's he just feels out of place in that movie, I feel. And... I don't feel, I feel like, like it's kind I don't of feel like he's necessarily out of place in the film. Um, it's just for me when I watch it, I feel like his character uh, 
is kind of the least act, uh, the least interesting acting challenge, so to speak. Like in terms of Cary Grant versus uh, Ronald Coleman, Coleman definitely has the more interesting and complex character to play. So I feel like he just has the, he just has the material. Look at the material. Yeah, I gotta say that Um. So yeah. Um. Yeah, Top of Town is interesting first time. I do feel like it's a. It does feel in a lot of ways like a warm up to, um. The more the merrier, which is a far better movie, but this is still good. And see, again. Not to be controversial yet brave, I like Talk of the Town way better than More the Merrier. Oh wow! And I didn't realize that that was controversial until I looked. I compared the average ratings on Letterboxd, and I was like, "Oh wow! Like people really like More the Merrier, and they just kind of like Talk of the Town." For me, it's the opposite. And I'm like, what are people seeing in the in this other movie? That's something that that well, would be that, I... that would be a whole other podcast to do. Just an hour and a half of <laughs> what people like about it versus what I like about Talk of the Town. Now that's a discussion. Yeah, that would be interesting. I would love to hear your thoughts, but yeah. So next we have Best Supporting Actress. Ooh, the acting categories. The one where no one knows how to act, but everyone has opinions on how other people act. Especially on film Twitter. Very true. Okay. Speaking of which, my nominees for Best Supporting Actress for 1942 are Faye Bainter in Woman of the Year, Dolores Costello in The Magnificent Ambersons, Glynis Johns in 49th Parallel, Agnes Moorhead in The Magnificent Ambersons, and May Whitty in Mrs. Miniver. That's a good list. Yeah, I felt I felt compelled uh, to include Faye Bainter. She's one I feel like could definitely have fit into this category this year. Uh, she's someone that I feel like is very underrated. I've been having kind of a little Faye Bainter moment in the last couple months because I rewatched. Yeah. Like I rewatched Jezebel and then I watched her other uh, nominated uh, 1938 nomination for White Banners. And she is really good. She's in definitely that one too. of She's so great at the like, at like that subtlety. And it makes her such a, especially as a supporting role, it makes her so well equip equipped to be a supporting player because she knows how to just kind of take a step back but not get lost in the scenery or whatever. Like you still feel her presence, but she's not taking anything away from the stars of the picture, so to speak. She's kind of quietly doing her work and like really 
living in the side character. And she does that for a lot of her performances that I've seen of hers. And this is a really good example of that. I feel like this character of her, of Tess Harding's, uh, Catherine Hepburn's kind of pseudo maternal figure, uh, there's just such a delicacy and you could tell it's so carefully handled. And since uh, Faye Banter's character and I forget who the actor is that plays her father in the film, but those two characters serve an important purpose in the overall uh, point, the overall theme of the story of Woman of the Year. And Bainter really does a really good job of encapsulating not only that her, what her character is, but also being everything conceptually that her character needs to represent, as well as everything that, like, the vessel for the lessons that Tess Harding needs to learn about uh, marriage and compromise. I know this is a film that's very controversial for its kind of dated views of gender and some other stuff. And it's one that comes up a lot and people critique it. And I'm like, okay, yes, I get it. But like, I'm, I, I still like, I still like it. And I find myself going back to it because I just enjoy it. Problematic fave. Yeah, we all have a problematic faves. And it is completely understandable to like this movie. Like, yeah, I completely understand. And as for Faye Bainter, like she is one of those great character actresses. who I don't think she was ever bad. That's the best way I could describe her. Like, she was always doing something and just added to every scene she was in and improved the performances around her like any great character actress should. And yeah. And I guess with Mae Whitty, I really liked her scene for Mrs. Miniver or um, she confesses to having a difficult marriage that she regretted uh, in a conversation with Mrs. Miniver. That was one of the scenes from that movie I really liked. But yeah. Good list. Um, so, my nominees are Galinus Johns for 49th Parallel. Gladys Cooper for Now Voyager, Agnes Moorhead for The Magnificent Dambersons, Mary Wicks for The Man Who Came to Dinner, and Mary Astor for The Palm Beach Story. Uh, Mary, Mary Wicks, she was the one that played the nurse, right? Yeah. Yeah, she was also the nurse in Now Voyager, right? I... Um, I think she was. Yeah. I know her from, uh, primarily because I'm a big fan of Lucille Ball. And she appeared a lot in, uh, some of Lucy's later shows, like The Lucy Show, and here's Lucy as, like, part of the recurring characters of Lucy's friends in those shows. 
Uh, so it's always weird to see her show up in these old movies because because I, I know her from like these caricatures she plays in the TV shows of the 60s and 70s. And to see her just like in a movie and being so young, I'm always like, oh, good, she's here. I'm never disappointed to see her because she's always, she's always, she's just so fun. Every time, whether I'm watching her in a really corny ass episode of the Lucy show or uh, playing a nurse in any one of these films, <laughs> um, she's one of those people that just has a, she has a very delightful, funny energy to her. Not that familiar with most of Lucille, Lucille Ball's work, and which is one of those embarrassing blind spots for me. I feel like I ought to know more about Lucille Ball and her work, but I guess I want to recidify that um, as my life goes on. But yeah, Mary Wicks really does sound like a great character actress from what I know of her. And then Mary Astor in the Palm Beach story. Like Mary Astor is like I think she's one of my favorite actresses from this era. Like she has so much charisma and she's just stunning in everything she's in and she's a delight here. Playing the sort of kinda Ditzy princess, uh, princess sister of Joel McCree's character, I think. Hopefully, I'm not remembering details wrong. Yeah, I get what you mean. And I'm then not, Gladys. I'm not a huge fan of Mary Astor. I just haven't seen a lot of her work to decidedly have an opinion on her. Um, but I have seen some things I really like from her. This is. Uh, in my opinion, one of her better performances. Uh, I think she fits very well into this character and the story, and she plays well off of everyone. So yeah, she's a good inclusion here. Yeah. And then Gladys Cooper just plays a very cold, rigid, toxic mother so well. And you can tell she just remains convinced that she's right about everything. Like, this is for the best, what she is doing to Charlotte. And that final argument, you can see, like, that there is terror in her eyes, almost. Because she, it almost seems like she gets a sense that Charlotte is gaining control over her, for once. And it's so well played by, by Cooper. And Davis, for that matter. I mean, I don't think anyone can talk about Gladys Cooper in this movie without talking about one of the most iconic camp moments of classic film history, where in order to play the victim and uh, pull focus, she throws herself down a flight of stairs, causing bodily harm to herself. For just uh, so so deliciously petty and melodramatic. You can't, you, you have to respect it. You have to respect it. 
that's like the movie at its soapiest. And I love the moment where she's at the top of the stairs, and you can tell, like, you can see on her face that, like, she's looking down, and she's she's like, I know what to do here. I know how I can get the yeah. upper hands. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. So next we have Best Supporting Actor. Yes, sadly now we must move on and talk about men. The... Yeah. <laughs> what are men? Men? Men are a mistake. Never heard of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so my nominees for supporting actor are Ernest Anderson in In This Our Life, Van Heflin in Johnny Eager, Claude Rains in Now Voyager, Henry Travers in Mrs. Miniver, and Anton Walbrook in 49th Parallel. Interesting selection of nominees. Um, I did nominate someone from 49's Parallel, but it's not Anton Walbrook. Mm. And Claude Rains, he's one of the great character actors, as we all know. And he's great as usual here in Now Voyager. Playing such a sweet, nice guy. Oh, nice person. He and really he really just makes the story possible. He is the catalyst. Yeah. And yeah. So my nominees are Raymond Massey for 49th Parallel. Ward Bond for Gentleman Jim. Van Heflin for Johnny Eager, Claude Rains for Now Voyager, and Felix Bressart for To Be or Not To Be. Despite the fact that he won this award at the actual ceremony, I feel like not enough people uh, appreciate Van Heflin and specifically what he does in Johnny Eager, because he really... Uh, not to be controversial, I don't know if this is controversial, but he's kind of, in my opinion, the best thing about that movie. And especially, in, yeah, he's pretty much the only reason that movie. Yeah, it's not a bad movie, but in terms of just the actors, there's nothing anyone is even nothing that's anyone's doing that is even remotely close to being as interesting or as textured as what he manages to bring to this character that on paper has no business being as interesting as he can ends up coming across through the screen uh, and that's a big part due to Heflin and what he was able to bring to the character and just he feels so grounded and uh, it feels almost a little bit ahead of its time like it feels a little more deep than some of the other performances, not only of that era, but even performances going on in that film. 
Yeah, definitely. He doesn't overplay his alcoholic character the way a lot of actors did at the time. He feels very grounded, and there's a lot of texture in his performance. And he has that, he just has that face that lends itself to a lot of expressiveness and world weariness that made him such, I'll put it this way, he was equally adept in both leading roles and supporting roles. And I feel he doesn't get enough respect for that. There's something about his face that feels kind of sad, so it lends to an added layer of vulnerability. It makes it feel more human and more tender, as opposed to a lot of these, uh, like, especially like the Clark Gables and types like those, where they're very stiff and stoic. There's something about him that feels very emotional and very real. Yeah. Um, he almost reminds me of, like, John C. Riley, Like, a John C. Riley of his time. You know who, who, who he makes me think of now in terms of, uh, just, like, the vibe, as well as kind of also the look? He reminds me a lot of, like, Carl Marlden. Like, if they played brothers or something in a movie from this era, I would believe it. Yeah. So... See, some men are interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Some... (laughs) Um... So next we have Best Actress. Yes, Best Actress, the category that we're all here for. Yes. We all pretend... The one best, that matters the most. We all, we all pretend Best Picture is the category of this night, but we all know it's really Best Actress. So... Yeah. Uh, first off, women. Second, my nominees for... My for Best Actress are Jean Arthur in The Talk of the Town, Betty Davis for Now Voyager, Greer Garson for Mrs. Miniver, Catherine Hepburn for Woman of the Year, and the late Carol Lombard for To Be or Not To Be. That's a great set of nominees, and Jean Arthur, she's great in everything. Like, another performer who never gave a bad performance. And she would have been great for this year as well. And I've already given her a win and a couple of nominations, and Jean Arthur rules. The fact that she only had one nomination in real life ever is not only absurd, but technically a hate crime. <laughs> yeah. Because it's a crime. It's a hate crime because I hate it and it should be a crime. <laughs> yes. It is a crime. Just a crime against humanity. 
Like, how dare you disrespect Jane Austen like that? And then the fact that... Um, the fact that over a certain amount of years, she was uh, a part of, if not... So even a, yeah, she was so such a prominent performer in so many films that were not only Best Picture nominees, but films that are A, classic, considered classics even to this day, and B, films that in their time, along with getting Best Picture, also got several nominees and nominations in many of the big categories. So it's like, how could someone give basically a leading performance in a film that gets nominated for picture and director and screenplay and gets three other acting nominations, but then, but then she doesn't? It, it, make it make sense. Make it make sense. Make it make sense. Like, you can't. You can't. Ugh. Uh, the Academy. What have you done? Choices. Uh, yeah. So, my nominees are Ginger Rogers for The Major and the Minor, Betty Davis for Now Voyager, Claudette Colbert for The Palm Beach Story, Veronica Lake for Sullivan's Travels, and the late Carol Lombard for To Be or Not To Be. Carol Lombard's another one. The fact that she only has one nomination, even though she did have an admittedly short career, to have just the one feels, again, it is a hate crime. Because it's, I hate it and it should be a crime. Yeah. And, yeah, it is shocking that she just has that one nomination and even more baffling that she couldn't even get support or even get like say sentimental support um this year i mean we'll talk more about the film itself and uh response to it but yeah it's strange yeah, I, I have some personal yeah. theories as to as to why the film itself may have been a hindrance to any kind of posthumous career win for her. Yeah. So next is Best Actor. Um, which is probably the category that most people don't care about. I will say that it's it's not that this is a category people don't really care about. It's a category that is never really interesting enough as the Academy dictates. Yeah, that's of, what I was saying. Just... Plenty, plenty of interesting act, leading acting performances in any given year, uh, even this year or even 1942. There's always so many good performances by leading actors not a lot of great nominated performances by leading actors especially in this era like woof yeah true that's what I was saying it was a joke but what you say is true I mean I'm here to <laughs> like spill the tea. real category yeah the real category this year was what what even was it 
What even is Sergeant York? <laughs> it's a no for me, Doc. That's what Sergeant York is. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, men. Uh, so my nominees for Best yeah. Actor are James Cagney for Yankee Doodle Dandy, Ronald Coleman for Random Harvest, Gene Kelly for For Me and My Gal, Joe McCree for Sullivan's Travels, and Spencer Tracy for Woman of the Year. That's a good set of nominees. And even though I didn't like For Me and My Gal, I do appreciate the Gene Kelly nomination. Yeah, that, that was a film that when I watched it, I liked it a lot more than I thought I was going to when I watched it. And um, yes, I know it's a Judy Garland film. We stand Judy, icon, legend, she is the moment now, come on now. But uh, I feel like Gene Kelly really gives a really good performance. He gets, not only does he have the showman uh, song and dance thing, which takes a lot of work to do, but I feel like the dramatic acts, aspects of the performance, uh, he, he's given the material where someone that wasn't a capable actor, as well as a showman, would not have been able to pull it off. I feel like he does a pretty good job at it. Very solid point. So definitely a lot more interesting than whenever the hell Gary Cooper was doing. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> and like, Pride of the Yankees, he looks like he's 60 years old. Like, I keep bringing it up. He looks like he's 60 years old, but he's supposed to be playing like a young man in his 20s. Like, he, he was I not, he was not the age that an actor needs to be to play that many decades of a person's life because there is a certain age where you can do that with like a little makeup trick here and there he was not that age he looked older than he was like if I want to get in front of the Yankees completely like why couldn't you have gotten James Stewart to play that role that feels like a very James Stewart kind of role it does feel like a very James Stewart role the T, though, and this is what I read, is that the guy that the movie's about, Lou Gehrig, specifically asked uh, if Gary Cooper could play him. Like, he specifically chose Gary Cooper because he really liked him, that makes I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Very big make a uh, energy going on with this one. Yeah, <laughs> it does feel strangely exploitative. Um, I mean, and like I don't know. Yeah, it does feel icky in a way. I don't know. Maybe this movie had like Luke Garrett's approval um, before he passed. But yeah, not something that we need to revisit. Yeah, one thing I would give credit for, though, 
is that had it just been an entire movie about him discovering that he's sick and has this disease, holy shit would have been the most boring, most awful thing and would have aged so much more poorly as opposed to just this very neutral biopic that culminates in Boo Garrick and his uh, disease. Yeah. So, my nominees are Errol Flynn for Gentleman Jim, Monty Wally for The Man Who Came to Dinner, Joel McCree for Sullivan's Travels, Alan Ladd for This Gun for Hire, and Jack Benny for To Be or Not To Be. Yeah, that that's a good one. Um... I feel like it makes sense that if you're going to nominate To Be or Not To Be, which is a very good film, that Jack Benny would obviously show up somewhere because uh, he is a major player. He's kind of, he would, you could argue, the lead of the story. And a big part of what makes the film work is his ability as a comedian. So I definitely get the nomination for that one. Personally, I like the I like the guys that I nominated and what they were doing in their respective films better, but I see where you're coming from and I respect it. And I I get it and I understand. I guess also with Alan Ladd. I'm just surprised by how capable he is here. He just seems like one of those actors who uh i guess the 1940s tried to convince us was this big set symbol but eh, he looks kind of neutral to me but he's he's still really good in this and errol flynn um this is one of those roles that lets him show off maybe a bit more depth per se or range whatever you call it and he's also really good here. And with Monty Woolley, I did contemplate whether to put him in lead or supporting, but I settled on lead because he's on the same way, he's on the same level of screen time as uh, Betty Davis and Ed Sheridan. Yeah, he's he's definitely a lead in that movie. That is that is the correct answer. Congratulations. You got the answer correct. I'm not that um, uptight about category fraud. But there's sometimes I draw the line. Unlike a certain Joseph Gentili. Oh, if you're yeah. <laughs> if you're listening, don't know, but. Hi, if you're listening. Hi, Joey. Hi. Text me sometime. Hi, Joey. So, next is Best Director. Director. The person known for giving direction to many others in a film. Uh, so, my nominees for Best Director are... Ernst Lubitsch for To Be or Not To Be, 
Irving Rapper for Now Voyager, George Stevens for The Talk of the Town, Preston Sturges for Sullivan's Travels, and William Wyler for Mrs. Miniver, the director of A Thousand Takes. Ah, yes. <laughs> he did have a reputation as a, um, as a perfectionist, I think. So, my nominees are Michael Powell for 49th Parallel, Orson Welles for The Magnificent Jeffersons, Alfred Hitchcock for Saboteur, Preston Sturges for Sullivan's Travels, and Ernst Lubitsch for To Be or Not To Be. Yeah. Not only my lineup, but also your lineup. Both of our lineups, you should say, um, are leaps and bounds above whatever the hell was actually going on in this category this year. Yeah, I mean, Wake Island, what even is that? I don't know, but if there's anything that I would have nominated Wake Island for directing, maybe not. Yeah. Um, so next is the big one. Outstanding production, which is what they called Best Picture at the time. Yes, what everyone's been waiting for, or what everyone's been pretending that they were waiting for when they were really waiting for Best Actress. Uh, but anyway, because it's a category we must acknowledge. My nominees for Best Picture of 1942, or I guess Outstanding Production of 1942, are 49th Parallel, For Me and My Gal, The Major and the Minor, Mrs. Miniver, Now Voyager, Random Harvest, Sullivan's Travels, The Talk of the Town, To Be or Not to Be, and Woman of the Year. Interesting lineup. So mine are 49th Parallel, Gentleman Jim, The Magnificent Ambersons, The Man Who Came to Dinner, Now Voyager, One of Our Aircraft is Missing, The Palm Beach Story, Saboteur, Sullivan's Travels, and To Be or Not To Be. Um, I think with uh, Gentleman, no, not Gentleman, um, The Magnificent Ambersons, um, I can definitely see all the points where it got chopped up in the studio by RKO. Um, and it is disappointing that we didn't get to see Orson Welles' fully realized version, but I guess I just want to give him the benefit of a doubt, and I think there's still enough to appreciate. And then, with something like Mrs. Miniver, I think it's technically well made, but I just could never escape 
how it felt so blatantly like war propaganda. And I feel like there was a lot of missed opportunity with that movie. Yeah, the thing for me with that movie, uh, like you said, it is technically very well made. Uh, there isn't really, uh, there's not a bad performance in it. It's obviously very well directed in my opinion. Uh, for overall, for the most part, it executes the story it's trying to tell fairly well. Uh, for me, a big issue is that I feel like for kind of the whole first half of the movie, there's not really that much going on. Uh, the movie is kind of meh until the war breaks out. Which in a way, I guess, is kind of the point of it, that, um, that it's supposed to like show the kind of mundane suburban lives that the men of her family is leading before the war breaks out and kind of upends everything they once knew and then they have to kind of fight to survive, uh, let alone maintain any kind of sense of normalcy uh, in the Blitz and just the constant threat of Nazi invasion. Uh, there's a lot of inter interesting elements in, this, in, in that one, but uh, I feel like it just it takes its it takes its time. It takes too long to get to the parts that are really the most interesting and compelling, and that's the big issue. Is that you kind of have to sit through a lot of eh before you get to the to the real meat and potatoes of of the story. Yeah, that's definitely um, one of my big issues with it as well. And then with something like Yankee Doodle Dandy, that just, that movie just really annoyed me. And I'm glad that um, you didn't nominate for Mr. Scrooge. Just let me double check. No, I didn't. It was, um, I didn't really hate it. I did enjoy it kind of overall, it, but it didn't blow me away. And it's not something I would put in my top 10 of that year. Uh, I feel like a, the two big reasons that it kind of made it into Best Picture that year were uh, A, the patriotism of it all, and B, uh, the production of it, like the fact that it is uh, this biopic melodrama with big musical sequences, because uh, it is a biopic about a vaudeville performer, essentially. So this, it's got everything kind of working in its favor to be like a big splashy production that he, obviously the Academy would want to highlight as one of the best films of the year to kind of justify how much money it probably took to, to get it made. Yeah, I understand why it was a big deal back in 1942, but it, the best term I can use for it is annoying. Like, Everything about it just annoyed me. Just maybe I need to be more adjusted to its theater roots, but yeah, it just it just rubbed me the wrong way. It's one of those films from this but era yeah. where you kind of have to go into it expecting that level of 
wholehearted, earnest patriotism that's kind of corny now. Um, you kind of just have to, when you sit down and watch it, you have to acknowledge, it's like, okay, this is what I'm in for. It's going to be like this. There's no way to change that about the film. So I just have to accept that this is a part of its personality and just see what else it has to offer. So yeah, these are all really good sets of nominees. So, when we get back, we will announce our winners, so stay tuned. After these messages, we'll be right back. After these messages, we'll be right back. We'll be right back. Yeah. After these messages, we'll be right back. After these messages, we'll be right back. And we're back. It is now time to announce our winners. And again, we're starting with special effects, ending with picture, and we take turns, and the guest goes first, you know the drill. So, um, I'll just announce my winner for special effects, since, um, uh, doesn't have that category. I have uh, my winner for special effects. Yes. Um, my winner for special effects is one of our aircraft is missing. Maybe yes. I might be biased because I see Ronald Nee. The, uh, as an Omni here, just went there, but yes. So next is best film editing. Okay, so for best film editing, my winner is Sullivan's Travels. Nice. Good winner. My winner is to be or not to be. Also a very good winner. From the great Dorothy Spencer. Women. Women. Next is the sound recording, which is one of the categories that only I have, so my winner is Gentleman Jim. I guess I go with that for the boxing scenes. Yeah, so next we have I, Best Original. I'm hearing a lot of what? movies from you today that uh, I guess I need to add to my watch list now. Yeah, it is worth watching. It's a good movie. Especially, the, well, what was that one you kept bringing up? Uh, one of our aircraft is missing? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I've been hearing a lot of it from you tonight. So now that one's definitely going on my watch list. 
yeah, like I said, it's a very good movie, and if you want to um, get all caught up on uh, Powell and Pressburger, that is a good early effort from them. The Archers. So next we have Best Original Song, and I'll just list my winner. Um, Love is a song from Bambi. Jesus Christ is shook. Even if I read it. Yeah. Even if I read it later, just White Christmas, no. Love is a song from Bambi is my choice. I do know that White Christmas is iconic. Can't knock that. It still holds the record for best selling single of all time. After look at that. Um, so next is best original score. Okay, so for best original score, my winner is now Voyager. And my winner is also now Voyager. Is that a is that a Max Steiner? Yeah. Go Max. Yeah, beautiful Max Steiner composition. So next is best makeup. Okay, so for best makeup, my winner is to be or not to be. My winner is 49th Parallel. That's one I gotta rewatch. But I do it, like. I think it didn't it win best makeup at the actual ceremony. No, there wasn't a makeup category. Oh, there wasn't. I thought there. I thought there was. Or something like that. I don't know. No. Oh no! Now I remember. Yeah, because they didn't introduce makeup until the 80s because the elephant man ah. which imagine Strange, imagine working on a film like that where you're doing the makeup design and your work is so good that people are like fuck we gotta just make a whole new category because this is on another level yeah So next we have best costume design. Okay, so my winner for costume design uh, should not be a surprise. It is Woman of the Year. Excellent choice. My winner is the Palm Beach Story. Not a bad winner, I will say. Very, very fashionable film that one is. So next is Best Color Cinematography, which um, another one you don't have, so I'll just um, yeah. announce my winner. I don't my see color. My winner is The Black Swan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which was the actual winner from the ceremony. 
So it all adds up. So next we have best black and white cinematography. Okay, so my winner for black and white cinematography is The Magnificent Ambersons. Ooh, good choice. My winner is Sullivan's Travels. I debated going with that one, but I end up going with uh, Magnificent Ambersons because for me, I don't love the film. For me, it's a it's a solid three out of five. But the thing that I walk away from it thinking about the most, and that I feel like is the most well executed aspect of it is the cinematography the very uh obviously a follow-up to citizen kane and kind of building off of the noirish uh chiaroscuro elements that were set up in that one uh i believe this is the same director of photography as citizen kane and obviously the same um, no it's um, stanley cortez oh was it oh um this is stanley but it's, it's still, it was a continuation of the visual style that was set up with that first film, with Citizen Kane. Uh, that adds a certain level of haunting drama to Ambersons. It's the thing that I remember most when I'm done watching the movie is that it just, it looks fantastic. Yes, very good point. So next we have Best Art Direction. So for best art direction, my winner is To Be or Not To Be. And I have the same winner. To Be or Not To Be is my winner. To Be or Not To Be the winner, perhaps? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So next is best cartoon short film, which only I have, so I'll announce my winner, The Bulleteers. I'm most familiar with it because I watched these Superman shorts as a kid. Mm. I'll just say that. And Is then that I'll one, just announce my Oh, one, you go ahead. Uh, one of the nominees you had for the cartoon category, uh, is Space. Is that the one with Donald Duck? Yeah. You see, I thought that was the one you were going to go with as your winner, so I'm kind of shocked. Yeah. You could make an argument for that. The sheer absurdity of it sells it for me. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of insane. And I wish Disney would embrace more insanity nowadays. It's just bananas um, that that got made at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I'll just announce my winner for one film, since that's the last book category that only I have. Mm -hmm. Four Steps in the Clouds from Italy, which got remade in 1995 as a Keanu Reeves vehicle called A Walk in the Clouds. Well, American remake aside, yay Italy, go Italians, my people. 
so next we have Best Adapted Screenplay. Yes, screenplay that was adapted from something else. So, my winner for Adapted Screenplay of 1942 is... Now Voyager. Very good choice. My winner is The Magnificent Ambersons. Hmm. Choices. Yeah. And a bookend for Orson Welles and the previous two wars I gave them. The last episode. Two claps for Orson, I guess. Yep. So... Next, Next is, a, is Best original, original Screenplay. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so my winner for Best Original Screenplay 1942 is To Be or Not To Be. Very good choice. I considered giving it to To Be or Not To Be, but ultimately ended up going with Sullivan's Travels. Yeah, that that was that was between the two of those for me, definitely. Kind of had to sit down and split hairs and decide which one I wanted to give it to. Yeah. And now onto the categories that everyone actually pays Thank attention you. to acting categories. Yeah. Next up, we have Best Supporting Actress. Yes, the gayest category. Presented by Gay. Okay, so my winner for Best Supporting Actress of 1942 is Agnes Moorhead for The Magnificent Ambersons. And ditto, my winner is also Agnes Moorhead for the Magnificent Ambersons. Another impeccable character actress. Yeah. And I think this performance lives on for a reason. Like that breakdown scene and yeah, she definitely earns it this time around. It's I brilliant. feel like I feel like it's the most well acted scene. Uh, much like we talked earlier about Van Heflin and how he kind of is leaps and bounds above whatever his other castmates are doing in that film, Agnes Moorhead is the same in this one, where I feel like what she's doing with what she's given is just on a whole other level to whatever anyone else is doing. They're just kind of, for me, they're just kind of filling the runtime until Agnes Moorhead gets to show up again. So, next we have Best Supporting Actor. Considerably less interesting, but we'll make do. Well, I my lineup is interesting. The Academy well, yeah, your lineup is itself. interesting. Yeah, 
Um, yeah, I'm just joking, but... No, but especially like la this last year, uh, they just decided supporting actor was the lead actor category, I guess. <laughs> what? Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, throwing it back to 1942, my winner for supporting actor is Van Heflin and Johnny Eager. Very good choice. My winner is Cloud Rains for now Voyager. Also a good choice. Cloud Rains is to this category and this decade what Agnes Moorhead was to the supporting actress category in this decade. Yes. So next we have the lead categories, Best Actress. Yes, the category that really, this is what we're here for. So let's get into it. My winner for Best Actress 1942 is Betty Davis for Now Voyager. That's a very good choice. And I know that's the consensus pick for Best Actress from 1942, and she's just divine here. Like her transformation and the way she carries herself and that final line. This is just perfect for her. This is a shining moment in a filmography full of incredible, iconic movies and performances. Yeah, it's kind of a shame that Betty Davis is only really known for her bitches, because uh, this is a role that shows what she's capable of when she's given a different kind of one than what we're used to seeing of her in films like Of Human Bondage, or Jezebel, or Dark Victory, or The Letter, or The Little Foxes, so pretty much everything she was nominated for before this. Uh, she kind of became known for her ability to play female villainy, but this is a really good example of how she's able to use her skills in a different context and how it's still just as marvelous to watch. Definitely. My winner though is, uh, my winner for best actress of 1942 is, Carol Lombard in To Be or Not To Be. Absolutely valid choice. Now let's take a moment to get into why she was not nominated to IRL in real life. Now, um, I'm sure it had everything to do with a combination of some things, but the two main factors that I feel like being included in this category at the ceremony, uh, despite uh, the tragedy of her sudden death and the career she could have had that she didn't because it got cut short. Um, I think, A, it was the fact that 
at this point, the Academy had kind of established a reputation of using, um, or the voting body, I should say, established a mindset of using the award as a way to uh, boost the profile of actors. Uh, this is definitely, you see through the, you kind of see it start in the 30s, but you really see it in full swing in the 40s through the 50s and a little bit even into the 60s of the studio system pushing for relatively new actors to win a lot of the acting awards to kind of, like I said, build up their profile and get them known. Uh, so there is probably not a lot of urgency to want to reward a woman who ultimately couldn't take the award home with her. It was uh, kind of tacky and cynical to say, but I can totally see the Academy at this point in time saying, well, what is she going to do with an Oscar? She's dead. Let's give it to someone who's still here and has potential for a future going forward. Um, and obviously... Uh, there's a lot of elements that led to Greer Garson being ultimately the person that walked away with the award. Um, and I know in the, I'm assuming not only you, but most of our listeners are probably aware of the YouTube channel, Be Kind Rewind. YouTube channel. Uh, yes. Love Izzy, Stan Her. Uh, she has a great video about this year and how Greer Garson won uh, so that, if you go and watch that, or if you have already seen that, you get a lot of the context as to specifically why she won. Uh, but something else I feel like that played against Carol Lombard's favor in this uh, awards race was, uh, like I said, it was not only the idea of, is it worth giving it to her? What good is it for her? Uh, which is the cynical route, but there's also the route of the fact that uh, the film was not very well received at the time. And I'm sure uh, even though we had at this point entered World War II, uh, we're officially in a post-Pearl Harbor America, uh, pro-war pro -war patriotism is in full swing as evident from films like Mrs. Miniver and Yankee Doodle Dandy. And this is a film that addresses the war but is A, not necessarily pro-American, even though it is kind of anti-Nazi, uh, but it's also a little too light. It's it's because uh, it's a comedy. So uh, comedies and Nazis, even now it's a controversial combination. Uh, just look at just in, 20, in 2019 with Jojo, Jojo Rabbit. Rabbit. Yeah, very divisive uh, now. So you can imagine not only a film coming out during a war about uh, political parties involved in said war, all of which is not, on top of all of that, starring an actress who literally died while during her part selling bonds for the war that they are addressing in this movie. So I feel like there's probably just a lot of elements that either made Academy voters stray or shy away from the film, not only in terms of controversy, but also in terms of 
probably a lot of debates of, is this even in good taste? And the fact that Carol Lombard, not only that she died tragically at this point, but also the context of her death where she died in a plane crash returning from a trip where she was selling war bonds. So her death is directly linked to the war and indirectly linked to Nazis. So the fact that this is her and that's how she died and this is what the movie's about. Overall, I can see Academy voters looking at this and going, hmm, no, I don't think so. Which is a shame because she's lovely. Yeah, it is a shame. And I definitely see all the points that you brought up here. And to your point, the movie was definitely not well received at the time. And neither was a film like Sullivan's Travels, which um, I don't have specific sources, but I did um, read on Wikipedia like, some things about it being seen as pretentious. So just people just, just didn't understand that movie at the time. So yeah, I definitely understand why those films, and to be or not to be especially, um, didn't make much impact at the Academy. But looking back in hindsight, what Carol Lombard does with this role, I feel like really is an encapsulation of everything that she had accomplished to that up to that point. And this is like one of those peak moments for her. And I love her so much in this role. And any other year Betty Davis would be my winner. But I just had to give it to Carol Walmart this year. Yeah, this one also feels a lot more uh, of a comprehensive performance from Carol Lombard, uh, where it's not only asking, obviously, uh, playing on her comedic strengths, uh, but because the film kind of lives in and basks in this kind of weird space between uh, the light, frivolous, kind of screwy comedy and the kind of dark, looming cloud of literal Nazi invaders. Uh, so it, it, asks, uh, it asks her to walk a very fine line. She kind of has to walk the tightrope of being funny, silly Carol Lombard, but also being able to step up to the plate when the more dramatic moments call for her to really bring weight. And that's really complicated and it's really difficult for a lot of actors to do, especially actors that have had a reputation of doing comedy because it could be very easy that an actor that mostly does comedy can't really translate uh, their charisma into dramatics as well. And there are plenty of examples of dramatic actors that just cannot figure out comedy to save their lives. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I guess that's what made Carol Lombard such a special actress in her time. So next we have Best Actor. Best Actor. A category that no one really loves, but sometimes it pops off. 
Yeah, especially when we can make it better than the uh, so-called professionals. She's the person that you want to stop inviting to all your parties because she's a bit of a bummer, but once in a while she does something that she really snaps and she really goes off and you're like, okay, this is why we keep inviting her. Anyway, hey, yeah. that being said, <laughs> um, my best actor of 1942 is Ronald Coleman for Random Harvest. Interesting choice. I, I really like Ronald Coleman. And I, I kind of feel like he's a bit, dare I say, underrated. Because I feel like he's not one of those actors from this era that gets talked about a lot. But for the performances I've seen from him in, like, uh, in Random Harvest and Talk of the Town and A Double Life, regardless of how I feel about the films themselves, he is so captivating and interesting. And he's clearly... Uh, Overall, he's just kind of a step above a lot of the other movie stars and actors of this era. Where I just I can feel the 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 acting and the the work and the like the character work underneath and like there's definitely a lot of um maybe a a, a bit of a intellectualization, but there's definitely a lot of care and intention in what he does on screen. And this is a really good example of a kind of performance where uh, being really thoughtful of your actions and really going into a performance with a specific idea and a plan and with very clear intention can really pay off. And that kind of focus and how it is able to elevate uh, a film, even through some moments that may feel a little far-fetched or melodramatic where it's, it just takes that, that, that specific touch, that deft touch of either a director or a performer that makes it work in spite of itself. Definitely. All very good points. He really was that kind of movie star that I'd argue was very good in many types of films like swashbuckling and straight drama and adventure. But yeah. My winner, I ended up going with Joel McCree for Sullivan's Travels. Yeah, very solid choice and definitely makes sense because that's. It's because Sullivan's Travels, such a good film. And he's such, uh, Joel McCree is such an integral part of the story and the film. If he did not do a good job, the film would not be as good as it is because he's just too, his character's too involved in the story. It's kind of his story. So if he wasn't doing a good job playing that character, the film would in a way kind of fall apart. Like it really needs him to step up and he does. Uh, Ronald Coleman does a little more for me, but uh, Joel McCree, I, 
kind of want to say he would be my runner-up this year because he really does bring a lot to the table. Yeah, it's one of those movies that rides or dies on its leading man being just just be incredible in this type of role. Because as great as the dialogue is, as great as the direction is, you need a leading man who can sell this director's charisma and his wild energy. And Joel McCree has that all-American charm and uh, an earnestness that makes him endearing. Yeah, and uh, screen presence and acting ability aside, uh, Joe yeah. McCree could literally beat the shit out of me. And I would thank him and offer him a ride home. <laughs> yeah. T 10 out of 10, too yummy for his own good. Yeah. So next we have Best Director. Okay, so Best Director. Uh, my winner for Best Director is William Wyler for Mrs. Miniver. Period. That's a decent. Oh. <laughs> you're um, you go ahead. No, I, I was just saying, period. Oh. Mm. Um, yeah, decent choice. He does direct the movie very well. What sort of position he was known for. Yeah, as much as I have definitely have my complaints about the movie and certain elements of it, the direction is not something I have much to complain about and considering all of the elements that go on in this film uh even with all the critiques like i've said earlier that the first half kind of drags a bit um there's so many things that need to be attended to if you're the director uh tasked with bringing this story to life. There's so many things that you need to be aware of and so many different uh, moments and not only just the, the whole cast of characters you have to work with, you have to deal with the kind of inherently contrasting tone where you're trying to balance the quaint suburbanness of the first half with the stiff upper lip. Uh, we will overcome kind of a war movie that it becomes in the second half, even though there isn't a lot of action going on in it. Um, and then the, the, there are some really good moments of tension. And that's also another thing that uh, if this film had been in the wrong hands, it would have been really hard to build any sense of tension. Like those scenes where like a blitz is about to happen and those sirens go off. Every single time, somehow William Wyler manages to execute it in a way that like every time you hear those sirens, it makes my butthole clench. Like he does a really good job at making you feel the tension of, oh fuck, here we go again. 
So, my winner is the great Ernst Lubitsch for To Be or Not To Be. Another really good choice. And I can see, I can see where you come from because there is a lot of similarities from kind of like what I was saying about William Wyler, To Be or Not To Be is another one of those films where there's a lot of contrasting uh, elements going on. And if someone that wasn't necessarily as skilled a director as someone like William Wyler or Ernest Lubitsch, uh, it would have been very, very easy for that movie to go south very quickly because there are a lot of complicated aspects to it that if you do not execute it just right, it's just gonna land with the loudest thud. And so yeah, he does, and his, his sophisticated comedy style is very suited to the kind of comedy that film is trying to do. And I feel like the fact that it's the kind of subtle, more on the subtle side and more sophisticated type of comedy, that kind of highbrow, uh, it makes the, 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 you know, the, the Nazis a little more digestible as a story element. So you're equally difficult Definitely. So next we have best picture. The big one. Yes. Technically the big category of the night. Okay. Uh, So I know we weren't doing this for the other nominees, but I'm just gonna, or for the other categories, I'm just gonna read, read, read the nominees so we all remember because this this is a category where there's a lot of them in there so we could all use a refresher so as a reminder my nominees for best picture were 49th parallel for me and my gal the major and the minor mrs miniver now voyager random harvest sullivan's travels the talk of the town, to be or not to be, and woman of the year. And my winner for best picture of 1942 is Sullivan's Travels. Cue applause. Very good choice. (laughs) There is a universality to that will be in its message that comedy is essential. I so even kind of surprised my myself is... with choosing that as a winner because I think the only other award I gave it was editing. Yeah. But I'm not the Academy. I'm guess... me. And I do what I want. Yeah. You do you. But my winner is to be or not to be. Look at everyone, pretend to be shocked. Yes. <clears throat> 
and yeah it's just the one that upon two watches I just had a blast with this it's definitely a very interesting and watch it is and I feel like if I were to give Ernst Lubitsch um, a director win for any of his films with this one and this is even though he's directed many great films. And this is actually his second best picture for me after Trouble in Paradise. He was a master. Yeah, I need to watch more of his so, yeah. stuff. Yeah, he was a great director. So, yeah, those are our alternate Oscars. What a fun year. The year of the war. Yeah, the year of the war. So, I don't do know we want to talk about more about... I, I think we did a pretty good job of being uh, a lot more not only correct but also creative in our nominees and our winners. Yeah, I think we did. Ours have more flavor. Do we? Have more? Yeah. And. A lot more interesting nominees than some of the others, the actual nominees. But do we want to talk a bit more about the actual Best Picture winner this year, Mrs. Miniver? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to discuss because it's not a bad film. Uh, um, I included it, I included it in my lineup because I feel like it definitely deserves. Uh, a nomination. It's definitely, especially of the films that, not only of this year but of this era, that are very obviously uh, World War II propaganda projects. Uh, it's one of the more well-executed ones because it's not kind of. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't live or die on the patriotism and the propagandiness of it. It. Uh, if you divorced it from the context of you needed to rally Americans to get behind the war and support it, it works on in its own right because it has com enough compelling elements in it where it's still an entertaining watch. It is. It's like a three and a half star movie for me. Or it's solid for what it is, but I'm just not sure if it stands out for me compared to some of the other films from this year. But I do understand why it was made and the appeal. 
and I will say this is the only Greer Garson performance where I, where I get why people liked her so much in this decade. All her other nominations, I just scratch my head. I'm like, but for why? The closest, uh, I guess, besides this would be Pride and Prejudice, maybe. But, yeah. Um, Brie Garson was one of those actresses that Louis B. Mayer definitely pushed her a lot um, as one of the um, reigning stars of this era. And I don't blame her entirely because uh, she was doing a lot of the roles that Louis B. Mayer wanted her to do and she did want to do more diverse roles, but it's hard to really get excited about her nowadays because a lot of her projects do feel really stuffy and there's just not a lot to say about her besides her astronomical success like she was one of the reigning box office stars of her era like it cannot be emphasized enough but I do suppose that um what audiences were in love with when it came to their leading stars was a bit different from what they like nowadays. Yeah, it's also very interesting to see the fact that a lot of her filmography of that time, um, for uh, for lack of a better term, I guess you could call that of her era, her a lot of her films are, I guess what you would call popcorn movies. Because it was very much like the movies that people went to go like see at the movies. It wasn't so much the big spectacle of like the movie musical, but especially in the studio uh, system era of Hollywood, pretty much every film was made with the intention of being a commodity, of attracting an audience. So a lot of her films, not only was it whatever appeal people saw in her, but also that the films that she was given were very clearly designed to appeal to uh, a wide audience. So, so it's just interesting to think about how technically Greer Garson was like, kind of like queen of box office of her time, not only because of whatever appeal she might have had, but because her projects were designed to appeal to people in uh, not in the same way that a Marvel movie is, but serving a similar effect, if you know what I mean, where it's like a film that's specifically designed where uh, pretty much anyone can buy a ticket, go into it, and audiences of that era would have gotten something out of it. Uh, predominantly women, obviously, if Greer is playing their leading role, but um, yeah, she's a strange, a strange figure of that era, considering her popularity of that time and her, I guess, lack of popularity in uh, contemporary, the contemporary zeitgeist, so to speak.
Yeah, definitely good points. Hmm, yeah, her popularity was definitely tied to the times, and I definitely associate her with, uh, like, the wartime, and just what audiences wanted out of, um, again, what audiences wanted out of her living movie stars, and what they expected, and what movie stars represented at the time. So, I guess now it's time, uh, uh, we have, um, audience questions that we could answer. So, this is from Brian Lindsay. Do you think Teresa Wright would still have won supporting actress if she had not been a double nominee? Um, for example, the first spot was taken, um, by someone like Carol Lombard in To Be or Not To Be, or Ginger Rogers in The Major and the those are just the examples he gives. Uh-huh. You want to go first, or should I? Um, you can go first. Okay. Um, short answer, no. I think going into this, Teresa Wright pretty much had this in the bag. Um, I know a big part of the awards predictions now is Precursors. What about the precursors? There wasn't really that back then. But there was no statistic way of, or statistical way of deducing who had the best stats and who was the front runner. Uh, but considering how well Mrs. Miniver performed, not only in terms of its nominations, uh, it got nominated in all four of the acting categories. Uh, but also the fact that it just got as many nominations as it did, period. And the fact that it walked away with director and picture, it was just kind of obviously like the climate of, uh, of society at the time and culture at the time. And obviously the war was looming over everyone. So it was kind of, uh, it was kind of, if you were involved in Mrs. Miniver in any capacity, you were most likely going to walk home with an award that night. So the only real competition that Teresa Wright may have had in the supporting category may have been May Witty. Uh, but like I, like I mentioned earlier, this is a time in Hollywood where they were more inclined to try to award people who were on the younger side, usually people who were relatively new, uh, who showed a lot of promise and potential because putting that statue in their hands afforded them a certain level of prestige. So if you could bring in an actor, give them a couple roles, then give them a big role, then get them an Oscar, now you have a star. And uh, also considering the fact that Teresa Wright had the year before for the Foxes, it was clear that that was the the trajectory that her career path was on. Was, she was a star in the making, and the Academy saw who to award her for that. And they went for it. So I don't think, I think the double nomination was just a result of the momentum she had at that time. I don't think not having the double nomination would have affected her 
likelihood of winning in the supporting category. I think the fact that she won in the supporting category is merely a symptom of the same kind of environment that allowed her to be nominated in both categories in the first place. Yeah, um, very true. I think that Teresa would have won regardless of if she had that nomination for the Pride of the Yankees or not. Like, looking at it on paper, she makes sense as a winner of this time. For this movie. Just considering everything. Yeah, just politically speaking, like so, just, uh, where she was in her career at that point, as well as the how big a deal Mrs. Miniver was to the people, and specifically to the Academy voters as well at the time, uh, there's just no way she was not going to win this. That She had everything working in her favor. Yeah, so um, this is from Owen Daly. Why were there so many incredible comedies this year? Palm Beach story, Sullivan's Travels to be or not to be, and why were none of them highly recognized? I mean, it's kind of, kind of the duh answer. The Academy doesn't like comedies. <laughs> they, yeah. They clearly, they don't take comedy seriously. Uh, they don't consider it high art. Uh, a phrase I've been using, popcorn movie, to them it's a popcorn movie. It's just something that people go to see to kill an hour and a half. Um, there's nothing about it that, to the Academy members, not only then, but also even to this day, uh, reads as prestigious or anything of any artistic merit that feels like it earned an award of any kind. Uh, so not only you see this year, but you at, at this point they had set the precedent that they would follow for decades afterwards, uh, even up through this last year. Uh, they to them comedies aren't real movies. To them, real movies are drama. And if you're anything besides a drama, then shit out of luck. Um, yeah, definitely. So, um... Yeah, um, I guess I'll just co-sign all of what you said. Like, there's definitely an anti-comedy bias going on in the Academy. Has always been going on in the Academy. Unless there's something like it happened one night. Which I, I guess they saw as elevated comedy. Or, yeah, there's definitely an underappreciation for comedy. Um, so, Owen asked another question. Um, did the U.S.'s entry into World War II at the end of 1941 have any effect on films recognized and made? Again, duh. Uh, 
Uh, yes. Um, answer yes. Just looking at the films that were being made at the time and looking at not only who was nominated, but then who ultimately won awards this year at the Oscars, it was very clear that everyone had the war in their minds and um, regardless of how they felt about individual films in the lineup, World War II was obviously something that was factoring into everyone's decision-making overall. Because if you look at the fact that Mrs. Miniver, a film that's not only about the war, but specifically about regular everyday people enduring a war and surviving and making it through together, uh, it's a very obvious pointed message that goes directly uh, or points directly at not only filmgoers, but also to most people. Kind of even if you're a rich person that's a member of the academy, there's something about the Minivers that feels very real. Uh, supposed to even some of the other nominees that year that did deal with the war in some capacity. Uh, there's something about the Minivers in that film and that story that felt very real and relatable to a lot of people. So the fact that that not only won the top prize, but that it won as many Oscars as it did and was nominated for as many Oscars as it was, uh, that sends a clear message into the subconscious agenda that the Academy had and that America as a whole had, where we all had our minds on this one thing and there was one specific goal isn't the right word, I don't think, but uh, everyone was kind of on the same page in terms of uh, what they needed to see in their media and what they needed to be told and what they needed to feel safe and comforted. Uh, And this Miniver is a perfect example of that because it kind of sends the message of, uh, we will be okay. We will move on bad things will happen and we will make it work. So the fact that of all the films in this lineup that deal with the war, they went with a female led film where the ultimate message is we will move past this and we will return to some kind of normalcy no matter what that looks like. Um, Yeah, there's no way you can look at this, not only just of who won best picture, but just look at this year as a whole and not just clock instantly that the war had its fingerprints all over the ceremony. Definitely. And I'll just co-sign everything you said. Like, the Academy wanted to reflect uh, the times and they did so in their own way. And and to be fair to them, they did certainly reflect what people were feeling at the time and what they wanted to feel at the time. So, um, Ben Miller asked a similar question. Um, how much do you think the war fervor and patriotism played into the awards? And I think we already answered this question thoroughly. Um, 
Yeah, it's kind of so, just... Okay. Not to go into too much detail and beat a dead horse with, like, what I was talking about with the last question, but overall, pretty much, everyone was thinking the same thing. Everyone needed the same kind of comforting message. And the Academy voters, uh, well, not specifically thinking in the interests of the general public and moviegoers overall, uh, as people, uh, they are kind of just a sampling of uh, all of humanity in a way. So since everyone was thinking about it, of course this specific group of people would also be thinking about it. Uh, and they obviously took that into their hearts and let it inform their decisions that they made in voting this year. Yeah, it's just kind of an ex a case of not that the academy was intentionally trying to do something, but that um, they were just people affected by a thing, and this was uh, the result of the effect that the war had that the war had on the academy awards ceremony. You had people in the academy who were affected by the war, thinking about the war, uh, and they voted in a way that reflected that thinking, so. They definitely did. So, um, this is from Fritz and the Oscars. If Casablanca had contended this year, could it have, tri uh, could it have triumphed over Mrs. Miniver? Um, no. Yeah, I, I think Mrs. Miniver was was such a clear front runner that year. Like it had everything it needed going for it. Like the spirit of patriotism, like the yeah. timeliness, the reigning leading lady, um, the, the box office. Like Casablanca was not a hit at any point. And Mrs. Miniver very much was. I think it was the highest grossing movie of 1942. Yeah, also the fact that even if you look at them as, as Casablanca is a World War II movie, but thematically I could see it getting a bunch of nominations this year if it qualified. But um, Mrs. Miniver, the story and the message, like I said before, so specifically. So specifically pinpoints uh, what people needed to see and hear from media at that time. And that sort of comfort of, of like being told that it's all gonna work out and we're gonna get through uh, no matter what that looks like. So the kind of inspirational uh, tone of Mrs. Miniver, I think, especially because at that point, uh, we were less than a, we were just a little, or, or roughly a year into the war. So it's still relatively new and fresh in people's minds when they were voting for the awards. Uh, so Mrs. Miniver came out in an environment where it was our first year participating in World War II. Uh, and I think the fact that Casablanca 
had the luxury of having that extra year to really just uh, sink into people's minds, I guess. Um, I feel like if it, if it had qualified for the 40, 42 Oscars, it would have kind of been too soon. I feel like we needed the extra buffer time to be ready to award a film that was a little more edgier, a little, a little bit more cynical than uh, Mrs. Miniver, because Mrs. Miniver, because it was dealing with um, being released in such a close uh, vicinity with, uh, especially not only our interest into the war, but specifically Pearl Harbor, and everyone being so sensitive about the entire thing. Um, yeah, the Acad I, I don't see a world in which the Academy would vote for Casablanca over Mrs. Miniver if they had the choice between the two. Obviously, in hindsight, uh, most people would probably pick Casablanca over Mrs. Miniver. But at that time, given the, uh, the climate and what was going on around the world, and where American society was in terms of our perspective on the war and how fresh the wound of Pearl Harbor was, there's, there's, there's just, just no way. Miss Miniver was gonna win this because it, like I said, it sent the perfect message that people needed to hear in these uncertain times. I'm sure we're all familiar with living in uncertain times. Um, yeah, so the Academy just reflected that people as a whole needed to be comforted and they needed a message of hope and Mrs. Miniver represented that. So the Academy voted in a way that reflected the general feeling across America. So as wonderful and amazing as Casablanca is and how objectively you could say it's a better film than Mrs. Miniver, there was no way Mrs. Miniver was not walking away from uh, was not, yeah, wasn't walking away with the top prize for this specific ceremony, given the context that it was released in. Yeah, I'd say Warner Bros. was smart to wait on it until the next year, especially when uh, people hadn't seen the big frontrunner that year, the song of Bernadette, and that gave it a great advantage because voters did end up seeing Casablanca and it was honestly a stroke of luck that it ended up walking away with the big prize like if you watched um, Kevin Jacobson's pod, uh, his podcast and the runner-up is the episode he did with Car um, no, I think Samantha Ellis on the um, 1943 um, the year of the Song of Bernadette's and that was the big front runner, but Academy voters didn't see it. Um, but they did, like I said, they did see Casablanca. And the Andrew and Rockets episode goes into a lot more detail, but yeah. Um, things did turn out for the better when they came to Casablanca, I suppose.
so um this is from Chelsea Eichholz. Uh what modern films would you cast for Garson in today? Um this is kind of a tricky question because she's so tied to the nineteen forties and but I guess what actresses and women it looks like in the nineteen forties in a certain subset. I guess um Stephen James uh, responding to one of my tweets did say that maybe she could work in a Sally Field kind of context. Maybe. Um, like in something like, say, Places in Horror, or even Norma Ray. Um. So, what would you say, Luke? Uh, what was the question again? Um, what modern films would you cast Greer Garson in today? Oof. Um. Oof. I don't think I would want to cast regards to anything today. At least nothing in a lead. It's not an... Yeah, it's a hard question for uh, because of what I just said. And yeah. Yeah, and the quality I just that, don't think she would the qualities that she became known for in her performances and uh, just her image as a star doesn't really gel with a lot of contemporary uh, acting techniques and contemporary uh, audience tastes. So it, it just, it, it's kind of yeah. almost, she's not one of those actors that you think, oh, I would have loved to have seen her play this. She's, she's no Karen Black. Yeah. Definitely not. To, even in like 1960, by 1960, she seemed out of place. Yeah, she by by 1960, she kind of she needs to play someone's mother, someone's grandmother. Like, no one wants to see the Grigarson story. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now you brought it up. Let's just um, let's just make the rule to like take the real-life person story and throw it in a ditch. Like, no more of those. Like, the Eddie Dutchin story, the Stratton story, the Al- no, the Jolson story. At, at, at least they stopped calling movies the insert name of subject story. That was really just lazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and... Also, some of the movies that were called that were really bad, like the Jolson story. <laughs> yeah, those are just kind of those movies that, like, I imagine you'd watch it and walk out of it and go, well, the Stratton story, it certainly was. 
Yeah. So, do you have any final thoughts on this year as a whole? Um, as a whole, I think this is a pretty good year in film. Not necessarily a great year for the Academy. Uh, they made some choices, not only in who they chose to acknowledge, but also in who they decided to give awards to. Um, including specific certain individuals who decided that getting an Oscar meant that they got to speak for five minutes. It's not how that works, Mary. Um, Mary. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, uh, Greg Garson's six-minute speech. Funny that we didn't bring it up until this point. Yeah, which also, for the people that were asking about how did the war and patriotism affect voters this year. The fact that they let her speak for that long and like, like that they let that happen tells you everything you need to know about how pussy lived everyone was by Mrs. Miniver. Yeah. Yeah. This is definitely one of those years that it feels so emblematic of what was going on and almost feels like a nature and the films that were the whole vibe of the academy almost feels like a nature response to the fervor going on. Yeah, from a historical perspective, it's really interesting to look at this year because you're like, oh wow, this this really was 1942, huh? Yeah. So, um, yeah, thank you, Luke, for uh, appearing, uh, for agreeing to be on this podcast. I had a wonderful time talking to you about this year. We had a lot to discuss. There was a lot to discuss. Yeah. There's a lot to talk about. There was so, a war going on. Yeah. Again, thank you so much. So, and thank you for I having me. I'll find you on social media. Um, uh, yeah, of course, I, anytime. I am on Twitter at uh, Luke Valley Writes. That's L U K E V A L L E. W-R-I-T-E-S. Uh, that is also my name on Letterboxd. You can follow me on there. I occasionally write reviews that are helpful and insightful. Uh, mostly I make uh, dumb one-line jokes about films that I may or may not enjoy. That sounds very nice. I do enjoy your presence on Twitter. Thank you. Um, So, um, be sure to follow this, um, be sure to follow the Alternate Oscars Twitter page at Alternate Oscars, should be easy to find. Um, I am on Twitter at SkaveTheJoker with two underscores. Um, I'm on Letterboxd as Mr. Willow. I'm on Instagram at GabeGuarn with a single underscore. 
and I also write reviews for Keith Loves, uh, Keith Loves Movies, and I just published my review for Gilda, so expect that in a couple of days. Um, be sure to rate and review this podcast and subscribe on whatever server you use. And until the next episode, sit back and relax, cheers and enjoy, and thank you for listening to the Alternate Oscars.